Today's conversation will serve two purposes. One, to introduce our newest member of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute family of senior fellows. So this will be a get to know the senior fellows episode, but it also fits in very well with our series examining forms of religious nationalism and the danger uh, and threat posed by this phenomenon around the world, but particularly in the United States. And with me in conversation today is Dr. Tobias Kramer. He is a junior research fellow in religion and the frontier challenges at Pembroke College, Oxford. His research focuses on the relationship between religion, secularization, and the surge of ethno-nationalist populism throughout Western societies. In his doctoral research at the University of Cambridge, Tobias explored how right-wing populist movements in Germany, France, and the United States employ Christianity as a cultural identity marker, and how believers and church authorities are reacting to such references. Tobias holds a PhD from the University of Cambridge, a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, where he was a McCloy Fellow, and a master's, uh, an MPhil in politics and international studies from Cambridge, as well as uh, his BA in politics, philosophy, and economics from the Sciences Po Paris. Uh, and my French is just uh, atrocious, so pardon me, all the Francophones out there. Uh, he worked in the German uh, parliament uh, and the German foreign office and as a management consultant. What a career you have had, Tobias, but I'm going to tell you that it all culminates in your recent appointment as a fellow with the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. So welcome, and it's wonderful <laughs> to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. Um, and, and thank you so much for the opportunity to get involved in the, uh, in the Bonhoeffer Institute. I'm really, really, really excited uh, about this appointment, both, both, as you say, because it's the peak of my career so far, uh, <laughs> but as you know, also for personal reasons. Um, it's a fantastic thing, and I'm very much looking forward to working together. Likewise, and of course, we've had a little bit of that uh, opportunity already when I sat with you during uh, the final stages of your research connected to uh, your work at Cambridge. And we can talk about that. I would like first to introduce you personally to our expanding family of podcast listeners, many of whom are academics themselves, or are clergy, or are engaged in one form or another with religious phenomena uh, around the world. So let's start with you as a person. Um, I know you weren't born Dr. Kramer. Uh, you started <laughs> life uh, somewhere as a child. So let's talk about your own personal history, if you don't mind giving us a biographical sketch. 
Yes, no, absolutely, Rob. Um, and uh, um, as you say, it does it does play into it. Um, and as I already mentioned, uh, in particular to the to uh, my appointment with the Bonifa Institute is also a personal uh, a personal honor for me. Um, because as, as you know, but as your listeners will probably not, um, I am the offspring of uh, quite a few generations of German clergy, um, including my mother, a couple of my aunts and uncles, my grandfather, um, but in the context of the Bonhoeffer Institute, perhaps most importantly, my great grandfather, who was a uh, uh, was called Hermann Barth, uh, no relation to Karl Barth, but who in fact uh, did um, did get engaged in the uh, Christian resistance uh, against the Nazis and did in fact work uh, and, and exchange letters both with Karl Barth um, and with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So um, being, being involved and uh, uh, being able to contribute to the Bonhoeffer Institute uh, in some ways is also for me personally important as a way to uh, connect with some of the work uh, my, uh, my great-grandfather did, which obviously is much more, uh, much more impressive than I would ever be able uh, to do, but um, it is still a nice connection. It is a very nice connection for you and for us at the Bonhoeffer Institute. Okay. I think you are an individual, um, perhaps the only individual in our, in our uh, cohort who has any uh, heret, uh, uh, you know, DNA connection <laughs> to, to what occurred in Germany, which of course is the backdrop to virtually everything uh, that we do at the mm -hmm. Institute. And how did that play into your own formation uh, as an individual growing up in that environment? How did that influence you, if it did at all? Yeah. No, I think it it did definitely influence me. So I, as I say, I grew up in a, in a within the church. I'm, I'm Lutheran uh, in Germany, which is uh, quite a uh, liberal, mainline Protestant uh, denomination. But the the main uh, denomination in in Germany. I grew up in the church, but I also grew up um, with a father who was involved in politics. Um, so always at the intersection of uh, religion and politics, which, by the way, in Germany uh, to this day is quite common. Um, I don't know whether you are aware, but uh, at the moment we obviously have Angela Merkel, who is uh, the daughter uh, of a Protestant, of, again, a Lutheran minister, um, and uh, the uh, pr German president was supposed to be uh, the president of the German, uh, of the Lutheran Synod, um, and his predecessor was himself a Lutheran pastor himself. So uh, in that respect, I'm not that unusual. Um, but it did always play a role to have these two influences through my parents, through my father as a politician and my mother uh, as a Lutheran minister. Um, but also maybe specifically having the history um, and the legacy of my great-grandfather. Um, because and, and also like maturing with that I think has been quite important for me because obviously as a child you you get this great heroic myth story of um, uh, the, the, the Christian resistance were all the good guys and the Christian churches were all the good guys and then there came these neo-pagan Nazis and uh, it was this heroic fight um, and uh, nothing of that sort could ever happen again because we have learned and Christians have become immune to uh, the far-right temptation. 
Um, but then obviously growing up, and I actually did a bit of research uh, myself uh, on the Confessing Church, on the history of the Confessing Church in Germany, um, and also on my great-grandfather in particular. But one of the big findings in there was that the Confessing Church has always been a minority, um, and uh, that, uh, that it's really much less black and white and much more gray. The Bonhoeffers, the Karl Barths, uh, were uh, much fewer in numbers uh, than the Reichsbischofs Müllers, who um, embraced a, a Germanic Christianity that got rid uh, of what they called the, um, the Rabbi, Rabbi Paul, the Gospel of the Rabbi Paul. Uh, and try to replace um, the Trinity of uh, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost with the Trinity of uh, God, Führer, and Vaterland. Um, so, grow, grow, like realizing that the, his, the heroic story of my great of my great grandfather um, was even on a personal level often grey. He himself, in 1933, voted for the Nazis, which he perceived as a bulwark against godless communism. Uh, and, and he initially was quite sympathetic to it, and it was really only when the real face of Nazism appeared uh, that he started to think, uh, oh gosh, this is really um, something of a different sort. But it took him a lot of time, and uh, in a way, it's almost, it made him more human to me to understand that, uh, it, as I say, it's not, it's not black and white, and people have doubts, and he had many doubts. Uh, I think in both directions, um, especially uh, also like a lot of ethical doubts about to what extent uh, a, a Protestant, a Lutheran could ever oppose uh, the state, um, given Luther's own teaching about um, the obedience due to a prince. Um, but I'm, I'm probably going steering a bit off here. So. Uh, well, it's let quite. Let me know if you have any specific things that I want to hear in. Yes. Uh, well, not really. You set the stage because we <laughs> want to talk uh, most exhaustively about your research and the reasons you mm -hmm. undertook it. And you're giving us some uh, hint of that now. But I want to ask you, at what stage of life were you when you started asking these deeper questions uh, about uh, not uh, only the circumstances surrounding uh, the church uh, during the Nazi era, but your own great-grandfather's uh, actions during that time. Where were you in life? Were you a teenager still? Mm -hmm. uh, were you in, uh, in your university studies? At what stage? Um, so the first time I really did a bit more research and found out a bit more than the, the, the children myth that we all grew up with uh, was in fact as a teenager, uh, because in German, uh, in German high school we do do the Confessing Church as one of the big topics in religious education. Um, and I did do a project on my great-grandfather uh, and therefore interviewed my grandmother, his daughter, um, as well as a couple of uh, people who still uh, knew him in the parish. Um, and uh, there, for the first time, I realized things that uh, back in 1933, as I said, he was open to Nazism. Uh, I also started to, to hear some of the implications um, that opposing the Nazis really had uh, from the fact that, um, like, slightly more... Um, 
humorous facts that he, some of his co-conspirators had to sign off with female names for the to stay anonymous, which then caused my great-grandmother uh, to suspect an affair and caused some, uh, some uh, bad blood that only really went away in 1945 when it turned out that uh, Barbara was a quite senior German uh, bishop um, and, and all of these things. So I, I did open, uh, I did realize um, some of the depth going into that, but I guess really the, really the, the, the moment where I started thinking of it in deeper terms and also in, um, in trying to, in making the connection to contemporary politics uh, was really during my uh, university studies um, and probably really only uh, in England and the United States um, while I was uh, at Harvard, as you mentioned. Um, and I think the first influence was when I started reading a bit of political theology, uh, and in particular Reinhold Niebuhr, um, and and the the idea of the theology behind, um, in a way, the resistance of the uh, to the Nazis. So both Niebuhr and Karl Barth, the idea of neo orthodoxy, um, and and revisiting um, how church and state can relate to one another, should relate to one another, and what are the dangers of a too close involvement of the church in politics, but also what are the dangers of a church that completely tries to stay out of politics. So uh, thinking about political theology and these thinkers in theoretical terms um, during my MPhil at the University of Cambridge was, I think, a bit of a coming of age, uh, trying to understand what probably was going on uh, theologically in my great-grandfather's head. Um, and then when I really started to think about how this applies in more contemporary politics was really while I was doing my MPP at Harvard in, in 2016, um, when, of course, uh, on the one hand, my, 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 um, that was my date with American Christianity, like becoming more familiar with uh, the, the, the complexities uh, of American uh, Christianity, the diversity in American Christianity uh, on the one hand, uh, but also the vibrancy and the, the life that American Christianity still holds, uh, which for European was quite exciting in many ways. Um, but then obviously also witnessing the rise of uh, Donald Trump um, in the United States and simultaneously the rise of uh, right-wing populism in the form of the alternative, alternative for Deutschland, alternative for Germany uh, in Germany or the Rassemblement National in France, uh, and really trying to understand um, the link or uh, maybe more the repulsion point between religion uh, and far-right politics make me then also rethink uh, historically of precedents, uh, what is similar, but also what is different uh, between the situation that uh, my great-grandfather faced um, in 1933 and the situation uh, we have been facing for the last couple of years. Um, and maybe to just start on a positive note, I do think that, uh, as I said, the situation my great-grandfather has been facing has been uh, infinitively more dangerous than the situation we are facing. I think we are facing big, 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 big problems, uh, but fortunately uh, not uh, fascist, national socialist, totalitarian regime of the same extent. Mm -hmm. Before we get into uh, your research work and what you've published to date, 
Uh, I do want to ask you the end of your great-grandfather's story. I take it mm-hmm. he survived the war. Uh, did he face personal consequences for his uh, dissent uh, <laughs> on Nazism and, and so forth? Yes, absolutely. Um, and that was, and this is perhaps to an extent where my Anglophilia and Americophilia comes from, um, because he was, I mean, he, he faced, he faced persecution, he faced uh, pressure from the very beginning, ever since he started uh, preaching. Um, I think he, he went out preaching with Karl Barth uh, in 1933, 1934, um, around the Bauman Declaration. So they were promoting in 1934, in particular, the, the results of the Bauman Declaration and started preaching. Uh, and from that moment onwards, he was, so to speak, on the list uh, for the Nazis. Um, and he uh, had uh, pretty much throughout the whole Third Reich um, era, from 1933, 1934, up to 1945, uh, SA soldiers in uniform uh, coming into his services, sitting in the front row, taking notes. Uh, he knows that he had Gestapo people uh, sitting, uh, coming into his services. Um, his his parish himself, so in his congregation uh, themselves, have actually been been extremely supportive of, of him uh, and tried to um, protect him from that. Um, and there were a couple of like uh, last minute, like very very close calls where um, the Nazis came in to uh, basically take him take him out or um, they put him into prison. Uh, and they went in through, through one side of the church, and um, his congregants uh, tried to stop them and got my great-grandfather out of the other side of the church, and so they could say he wasn't there at that particular moment. He couldn't have preached that particular sermon. Um, so that went on for, for almost the entire time. Uh, but it really all came to a head uh, in the spring of 1945, really very, very close to um, the end of the war when in Germany things got very, very bad to the extent that the Nazis then decided to uh, say that if, if we lose, we will make sure that all our opponents won't see the day of liberation either. Um, uh, these were the days when Bonhoeffer was, uh, was executed. Uh, and this was also when, the, uh, when one of the congregants in my great-grandfather's church came to him and said, uh, they finally did it. They passed your execution judgment. Uh, they are coming for you. Um, and it is only thanks to this warning that my great-grandfather could then run home. He always had prepared a bag of food uh, for himself, uh, and then he escaped into the woods. He didn't tell my uh, great-grandmother or any of his children about that, uh, hoping that them not knowing uh, would protect them if they got um, um, interviewed by the by the by the Nazi henchmen, by the SS or by the Gestapo, um, and to be entirely honest, though, I'm not entirely sure how long he would have survived in the woods. He was very lucky in that the uh, British and American soldiers uh, arrived within the next, uh, I think, two or three days uh, and beat the SS to finding him um, and and really saved his life uh, and. As a result, he and my family have always been incredibly grateful uh, to, also on a very personal level, um, to the United States and, and the United Kingdom um, 
and to the extent that my great grandfather actually uh, offered the vicarage as the headquarters for the uh, for the British officers at the time, and all of these things. Um, but yes, as a result, we are quite an Anglophile, Americanophile family, and we still have connections. We still, my grandparents still maintain um, contact to the children and grandchildren of the uh, British and American officers who stayed with them. Uh, after they they saved my great grandfather's life. Oh my! I hope <laughs> when you have time, uh, maybe even as late as your dotage, uh, you will be able to commit that story either to writing or to a film script because you have me <laughs> mesmerized. And uh, what a heritage! for you uh, to carry with you, and you do so nobly in your own work. Uh, and I want to talk about that. Uh, you have published recently mm -hmm. Faith, Nationalism, and the Future of Liberal Democracy with David Elcott and uh, two other colleagues. And, of course, this is just the distillation of a much wider range of work that you've done. And before we talk about the particulars there, uh, of course, there were personal motivations for exploring all of this. But in terms of your philosophical um, uh, your your own uh, social assessment of what is happening in the world today when it comes to religious nationalism, particularly when it makes Christian claims. How do you see that? Why why take it on with uh, with such a degree of commitment? Um, can you tell us how important? you see this as as subject matter for all of us? Um, well, <laughs> you are talking to somebody who spent uh, the, the best of his 20s uh, working on that. Uh, so obviously for me, the, the idea is this is very, very important if I sacrifice some of the, uh, what is supposed to be some of the best years of, of my life to that. Um, but I do also think that it's really a really, really important uh, topic quite seriously. Um, for, in a way, all of us, regardless of whether we are religious or not, whether we sympathize uh, with some of the ideas uh, the populists are putting forward. And, and I do actually think um, there, is, there are some legitimate concerns that are put forward by that, um, or whether we think this is a, a significant threat to democracy, which again, um, I think uh, can, that claim also can be made quite validly. Uh, but regardless, your political orientation, regardless of your religious orientation, I think it is really important to um, recognize what is happening there, um, because it's actually uh, quite surprising um, that there are so many misperceptions about that, uh, that we usually just tend to fall back in, into the, uh, the standard lenses and standard views we've had for the last couple of decades. Uh, and in a way, just assume, oh, um, right-wing populism and, and religion both is some, somehow reactionary or illiberal or whatever, and therefore they go together, and actually uh, Trumpism is just um, white Christian nationalism in another color, it's just the Christian right in another color, and actually what we are 
seeing in Europe is just the extension of American religious culture wars to, to Europe. Um, and if only we were all secular and, um, uh, and, and enlightened, um, this, this really wouldn't be a problem at all. Um, whereas reality just is much more complicated. Uh, there certainly are a lot of links between uh, conservative Christianity, uh, not just in the US, uh, also in, in Europe, and some of this far-right thought. Uh, but we also have to recognize that there's actually quite a strong uh, secular right that is on the rise. And again, not just in Europe, but also in the US that really couldn't care less uh, about the gospel uh, and some of its contents, but are much more uh, attuned to, uh, maybe not all too dissimilar to some of the things that, that we saw in the 1930s in Germany and beyond, um, and the idea of a, of a uh, that, that Christianity is just a religion of the weak and that actually uh, it might be better to get uh, rid of uh, such ideas altogether uh, and that there might actually be, a, as I said, a secular uh, right uh, on the rise um, that is much more concerned with white identity politics uh, regardless of religion uh, than it is uh, with uh, the defense of Christianity or the defense of the faith or however you might want to see it. So just showing that reality is more complicated um, than, so, than, some, than some of the narratives we have uh, might suggest and that um, just as Christianity itself is not uh, an easy solution for everything, nor secularization, uh, unfortunately. Um, and that actually in, in many ways we, we are the most secular we have ever, ever been uh, especially so in Europe, uh, where now Christians are by and large minorities. Uh, and yet at the same time, we don't, Europe is not much more vaccinated, let's put it like this, against the rise of the populist right uh, than the United States seems to be. That raises uh, an interesting question, or maybe for me, it's more simply of an observation. And that is that as I watched this unfold from the inside, uh, I think most of our listeners are familiar with my own story of having once advocated on the religious right in the United States and then uh, experiencing a, a, a transition uh, that has brought to me many benefits, but also regrets for those years. I contributed to what I now see as an enormous problem in our own country and beyond. Uh, but what I observed was that there was a time when the religious influences within the right actually had a uh, mitigating effect uh, on these movements uh, when they became too extreme uh, with violent words or actions, there would be a reaction from the religious elements within the movement that would challenge and sometimes even restrain uh, those impulses. Now I see that uh, that restraint, uh, that mitigating uh, element is, is now either rapidly dissolving or has disappeared entirely. Mm -hmm. Have you made uh, a, any similar observation about this amalgamation between secular and religious 
elements within uh, movements on the right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm so grateful that you point that out. And, and again, thank you so much for being one of my victims uh, <laughs> during, during my interview process. Uh, I really learned uh, an awful lot from you, uh, as you know, um, and, and which is why I, it's always a joy uh, to welcome you back as well um, to, to uh, give talks and, um, and, and share your wisdom, uh, for instance, uh, in the UK with me and my colleagues. Um, but I do really think that what you're saying there has, is quite representative of what we are seeing in many ways. So let's start by the mitigating impact religion can have on the right. Um, and we actually see that very clearly in Europe, um, where we have, as I mentioned briefly earlier, uh, actually what some scholars have called a religious vaccination effect to the extent that the more religious and more Christian you are uh, in, in Europe, you actually tend to be less likely to vote for right-wing populism. So right-wing populists actually do best among irreligious voters in uh, Europe, um, and they do worse among frequent church attendees. Uh, we see that in Germany, where the AFD does about double as well among irreligious voters than they do among um, Protestants and Catholics, but we also see that in other countries like the Netherlands, uh, France, Italy, etc. Um, and, and so a lot of scholars call this the religious vaccination effect, the religious immunization effect. Um, and that is related in many ways to the influence on the one hand of um, Christian democracy, uh, that, that the, the political movement that we have in Europe uh, that has really tried to put into place uh, or like try to, to take um, Christian values and make them fit for democracy and, and, and make this translation effort from Christian and specifically Catholic, actually, uh, social doctrine into, um, into secular politics. But it's really focused on what in German we call the Christliche Menschenbild, uh, which, which means uh, the Christian view of humankind or the Christian view of man in many ways, of uh, the idea how a Christian ethics of seeing the world and seeing the individual. Um, and as a result, there is this uh, tradition of bringing Christianity, bringing faith into politics, uh, but in a way that is trying to make it as inclusive as possible and that really focus on Christian values and beliefs. Um, and we also see that uh, in the behavior of the churches in the in 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 Europe, because if you look at if you compare the the Christian democratic way of uh, bringing in religion into politics to uh, what movements like the AfD or the Front National do, they also talk about Christianity. But when they talk about uh, Christianity, they really think primarily about Christianity as a national or cultural identity marker. Um, so if you if you think about religion in a way, it, religion always has two components. It's, it's uh, religion as a faith, uh, as believing, and then religion as a social and cultural identity that is about belonging. And historically, these two really went together. Um, and so Christian Democrats tried to bring in both, but they focus a bit more actually on the Christian believing and in the values that are within it and trying to translate that and make open regardless of your religious identity in some ways. Um, what is interesting is now that the populist right in Europe, they really dissociate belonging from believing. So in my interviews, I saw that quite often they were saying, oh, we, 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 are, we are, of course, we are atheists, but we are Lutheran atheists. 
or we are Catholic atheists. Um, for, us, for us, it's about Christianity as the religion of our fathers. Uh, this is about having a, um, a church in the village and not a mosque in the village. It's about having Sundays off and not Fridays off. It's about the war of Christmas um, and, and putting in a, a, um, a nativity scene into public spaces. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they would go to church on a Sunday or that they would even go to church on Christmas. It's much more this idea of a historical, in some ways even territorial, form of identity of Christianity or rather Christendom as an identifier of the us uh, against external others and specifically Islam. So it's, it's much more about belonging uh, than about believing. It's about identity rather than faith. Um, and what the churches in Germany have done to a large extent, how um, they have contributed to this religious vaccination effect is that they have been calling that out quite openly. Uh, so you see uh, both Catholic and Protestant leaders um, in Germany and uh, in France and Italy, the Pope, uh, Pope most importantly, uh, really going out there and saying that politics of exclusion, that politics of nativism um, is not Christian or is uh, anathema, in, in, especially in terms of immigration to Christian ethics. Uh, and, and really being quite outspoken to that, um, that a lot of the populist right leaders are now saying, well, uh, actually, this church is really annoying us. We, we are culturally Christian, but um, churches themselves and clerics themselves sh actually shouldn't have a say. Uh, and you, you, it's quite interesting to see now that, for instance, the Rassemblement National in France or even the AFD in Germany are actually pushing for much stricter separation of church and state trying to push the churches out of the public sphere. And we really see this clash in, in some ways between um, this populist right redefinition of what Christianity is about and then the traditional um, vision of Christianity of the churches. That being said, there is, of course, also debates to be had uh, to which one is actually more representative of Christianity, especially in secular Europe. As I say, where most people nowadays aren't Christian, or if they're Christian, they perceive themselves in similar terms as cultural Christians, that are just about tradition um, and, and cultural identity. Uh, and in many ways, the populist right uh, vision of, of Christianity might actually be more representative of what we can see in many European countries. But still, it is interesting that those few still go to church, those few who, who still are engaged in uh, the institution of the church and in congregations, uh, at least in Western Europe, uh, these people tend to be more immune or vaccinated in some ways against the uh, populist right. I'm talking with Tobias Kramer, a researcher at Pembroke College, Oxford, specialist in uh, religious nationalism, uh, political populism. He's the author with others of Faith, Nationalism, and the Future of Liberal Democracy. And I hope you'll be reading it as I am now with great interest. Uh, Tobias, you mentioned earlier uh, that the German Christians of 19... 33 uh, in uh, Germany replaced the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit with God, Fuhrer, and Fatherland, which as an evangelical Christian, uh, an American evangelical, I see as a, a supreme form of heresy. Um, now, not every Christian would, but uh, I think those of us who adhere to at least a small O orthodoxy would see that uh, as uh, really a defection uh, from the faith. In your assessment, you're both a student of religion and of politics. Do you see a failure of religion in this toxic mix? Uh, I mean, certainly there are many failures I'm sure uh, we could point to. But has religion failed in your estimation? You mean in contemporary politics or in the 1930s? Yes, contemporary. contemporary. As I would argue, um, it did in the 1930s, mm -hmm. uh, that there was a yeah. failure there, uh, not with your great-grandfather, <laughs> but <laughs> with many others, a failure to really uphold uh, the true values, uh, the imperatives of the faith. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I do... I do. I do definitely think that there was a failure in the 19, 1930s, and, and some even went so far, so I just mentioned the, the Trinity of God, Führer, and, uh, and, and Fatherland. Some even went so far to replace God with Volk, uh, the people, so Volk, Führer, and Fatherland um, being the, the new Holy Trinity. And, and the Nazis actually at some point also showed their, their true face, so uh, Hitler did say um, that the biggest, uh, one of the biggest challenges for him was actually not just um, the Jewish question, but the, after the solution of the Jewish question, um, the next big thing will be the solution of the church question. Um, so there, there was that, but a lot of Christians back then did not see it, uh, and more importantly, did not want to see it. Um, because I, I think, and that was what my, the research with my great-grandfather also showed, I think there were two main issues uh, that were there. One was um, the amalgamation of national identity and faith, um, that German Lutheranism was German first and in many ways Lutheranism or Christian second for many people, um, that this connection had been established. And uh, many um, in Germany, liberal and not, not politically liberal, but what's called liberal theology, um, had, had pushed, uh, for instance, the, the, the Hegel thinking ever further and were saying that actually um, divinity and, and Christianity expresses itself through the people uh, and that really you, can, you don't need the church anymore. You can have uh, this connection between um, the people uh, or the nation and, and Christianity in many ways. So this amalgamation of the nation uh, and faith or the nation and Christianity, I think, um, was one of the main fallacies that led many people to think like, oh, uh, actually, yes, uh, the Nazis pr protect the German people and they're in the German culture and thereby they protect um, the German faith, which is Christianity. Um, so I think that was one, uh, one failing and one temptation. Uh, the second one was that a lot of people were quite aware of the dangers that Nazism posed, uh, but there was this fear and this persecution complex and this uh, whole idea that 
they were the, of the dangers of uh, godless communism, of the dangers of the left, which in many ways were real. Uh, communism uh, was not very friendly towards religion at all, persecuted Christianity, um, unfortunately very successfully so in, in many parts of Eastern Europe, etc. But what they forgot was that um, the Nazis weren't any less dangerous to Christianity than godless communism. So in a way they tried to fight fire with fire. Um, and again, I don't want to make too many comparisons between what happened in the 1930s and the 1940s in Germany and what is happening today, uh, because it is different, very different beasts in many ways. Uh, the circumstances just are not quite comparable. But one thing that is comparable is the explanations I have heard in many Christian circles of those who do support um, uh, the, the populist right, uh, or, or populist right leader who do reference Christianity, they do say, uh, as you mentioned before, Christianity is this cultural identifier of the nation. It's the religion of our fathers on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, I do talk to, to many Christians who really are worried uh, about uh, the idea that secularism is closing in on them, that there is a, uh, an aggressive secular left um, that is uh, going to, to threaten um, religion as they know it. Um, and uh, that really uh, it's the, in a way a, a choice between uh, pest and cholera um, to choose between uh, uh, an identitarian uh, secular right uh, that at least pays lip service to religion, uh, if not real commitment. Uh, and then uh, a secular, what is perceived as a, as a secular left that doesn't even pay the lip service anymore, that is quite openly against it. And I think this fear, this idea of, a, um, of being persecuted or even, even um, being disadvantaged by the secular left um, is similar to some of the sentiments and rationales that went on in the thinking of many German Christians at the time. Your research has been excellent uh, in identifying uh, the problems that exist. And, uh, you know, I grew up under the adage that a problem defined is a problem half solved. But what is the rest of the solution? Um, what does your research indicate in terms of a solution to this crisis that we're seeing in the West in particular, but I know it's not uh, limited only to the West. It, it has expressions uh, in other places on the globe, but in particular, of course, being an American, I'm hopelessly provincial. Uh, and I think uh, in particular about the United States, but what has your research shown as possible solutions uh, to this crisis that we saw rise to the level of national violence here on January the 6th, when our uh, legislative branch was attacked physically by a mob uh, who supported the populist right uh, and Donald Trump in particular. So uh, I don't think it's hyperbole for me to describe it as a crisis here in the United States. It's very serious. Mm -hmm. uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about some of the indications that there are possible solutions 
Mm-hmm. So, so first of all, I think if I if I had a solution, I would probably uh, have a much better paid job that I actually do at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so the the, the 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 bad news is. Um, what my research has shown, there are no magical solutions to the extent that um, some some people read my research and think, oh, we just have to become all Christian again and, and uh, real Christian again uh, and, and things will sort themselves out just as other people read it and say like, oh, we just have to get rid of religion altogether uh, and just become all secular and enlightened uh, and all of this, uh, this political violence and association between religion uh, and politics will just go away and we will have a much more tolerant politics. I don't think either is the solution. Um, we have seen that uh, Christianity, even before um, high rates of secularization, uh, has been um, uh, used and abused uh, by uh, right-wing populism, but in turn also has fueled right-wing populism quite voluntarily, not just right-wing populism, far-right extremism in any way. Germany being the, the best example, that was still when 99% of Germans did identify uh, with the church and many, many, many more than today went uh, to church. Uh, but then at the same time, as I mentioned before, um, secularization on its own does not seem to be a solution either. Uh, instead, what we are just seeing is the replacement of the uh, Christian right or the religious right by a post-religious or secular right, uh, which might be more tolerant, uh, if you want to put it like this, or more liberal on issues like abortion and gay marriage, but uh, much more radical on issues like immigration uh, or or race relations. So uh, unfortunately, no no easy solutions. However, on a more micro level uh, or or even middle level, uh, my research did show that there is agency, uh, an important agency uh, that can make differences. So Um, As I mentioned, in Germany, we do see um, this quite strong religious vaccination effect um, and uh, that that, that Christian voters don't tend to vote uh, for the AFD. Um, And that is not because German Christians are, I don't know, better Christians or they really believe uh, in the the gospel much better than their American brethren. Uh, Not at all, perhaps even uh, even, even less so. but if you actually look at, at surveys, it's quite interesting that German Christians share uh, a lot of the right-wing populist attitudes with other secular Germans. But what is different is that there is something of a social taboo within the churches um, that stop them from acting on such attitudes that make them make a German Christian think I might uh, have resentments towards um, foreigners or immigrants, or I might feel insecure uh, or threatened um, by uh, a lot of the things that are going on on the left, Um, but they don't act on it to the same extent because the churches say, love thy neighbor, be open towards towards immigrants, etc., and because the churches say uh, that, um, uh, quoting one of the German bishops, the alternative for Germany, the AFD, is not an alternative for Christians, um, and that there is actually quite a high social taboo uh, and quite high social costs associated with um, supporting uh, the AFD in Germany if you're Christian. 
so what that shows is that faith leaders and the behavior of faith leaders can have quite uh, an important impact. And of course, it also comes with dangers. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, there is also the problem if you have a, a social taboo around things, uh, you might also uh, make it much harder for Christians who uh, want, uh, first of all, you politicize religion in some ways uh, in turn, uh, and, and you, you, you create a uh, which, is, which might be felt slightly uncomfortably, uh, an association between um, political, uh, between um, Christianity and um, the politics of the status quo or the mainstream parties. There's also a problem that it creates a social firewall uh, that cuts both ways and that might bring those Christians who have identified with the populist right, take them out of their community, uh, feel discriminated within Christian communities, uh, and then radicalize in return. Uh, so there, there are dangers to it. Uh, but what we do see um, is that there is this social taboo and that that is a main difference from the United States, uh, from the situation in the United States where uh, clergy have often um, been either careful not to speak out at all, uh, been very quiet. Um, I'm talking about clergy that is opposed to the populist right. A lot of clergy who was quite favorable of Trump, I think, did speak out. Uh, but many, many faith leaders uh, I spoke to um, who were opposed to Trumpism did say they did not speak out either because they didn't want to get involved politically or they were worried that their congregants might turn away or they were, they were worried that um, it wouldn't have any any effect and it would just polarize um, the, the congregations. And all of these risks are real. I do think uh, one shouldn't underestimate it. But it also comes at the cost of not speaking out about what these faith leaders saw as the Christian witness of being quiet and thereby legitimizing in many ways those voices um, who do speak out and say, yes, actually, um, these right-wing populist policies are uh, Christian. And if nobody speaks out against that, then people will think, okay, that's the majority voice. Therefore, it is now uh, morally okay to uh, support some of these policies. And I think that that might be, I think, just an important factor, the behavior of faith leaders and their willingness and ability to speak out um, on some of these political issues uh, and, and to speak out on if they perceive it as such uh, right-wing populists, uh, and I'm quoting again here, hijacking uh, religion for uh, less than Christian aims. I'd like to suggest that there are ways for religious leaders, pastors in Christian churches in particular, uh, to challenge uh, some of these notions and the errors uh, uh, that are that are uh, part of them uh, in in uh, convivial, congenial, irenic ways uh, that do not necessarily alienate people. So I hope that uh, our listeners who are denominational leaders, institutional leaders, uh, seminary professors, uh, and pastors uh, of congregations will consider uh, what you just heard uh, from Tobias Kramer on, uh, on what has already been demonstrably a solution 
at least in part, in small measure. Uh, but we know that uh, small and incremental changes eventually swell to a tipping point uh, and change things uh, one direction or the other. In this case, I, I would argue quite positively if we can do that. So let us find our courage. Please, please do. Just, just add a small detail. I think you, you just formulated that beautifully, um, and I 100% and I agree. But I just want to make uh, sure that there's also um, clarity that one of the big things that when I talked to German leading German clergy that they also said was um, when they speak out against right-wing populism, they don't get involved in politics. They talk about Christianity and they talk about theology. So what they, for instance, said is they would never say vote for the other candidate or um, uh, this is bad politics or we disagree with the populist right view on, I don't know, taxation or um, whatever might, that might be in foreign policy. But they would say, we stick to theology. This is our business. This is what we are allowed to talk about. But if the populist right in Germany starts talking about for instance, the AFD once said um, one shouldn't help Syrian refugees uh, because um, help thy neighbor is meant uh, entirely geographical and the Syrians live far, far, far away and therefore doesn't apply to them. Um, and, and then reference some, some theology saying that this, uh, this comes from there. Then, then they, the German clergy says, now we get involved uh, and let's have a discussion about theology. Uh, and see to what extent um, the commandment of loving thy neighbor uh, and of the, uh, the Good Samaritan does apply uh, to uh, Syrian refugees or not. So they, they get then involved. Or when um, the populist right talk about the Christian identity of Germany, then you will get German bishops saying, well, the Christian identity of Germany is best illustrated uh, when we welcome uh, refugees or when we um, are, are open and welcoming to the least of uh, the least of the, or when we put a lot of uh, effort into um, social policy programs rather than uh, than, than uh, exclusion. Um, but this sticking to theology and trying not to be too politicized uh, and really trying to what they said fight the populist right on the grounds of the church. Um, they said was most effective because that also implied. Um, that we are talking theology uh, and that those people who vote for the populist right are not completely out and that a lot of their concerns are actually um, legitimate and then what should, one should hear um, these concerns and should also engage with perhaps what the populist right might have to offer in some ways, uh, but that when the populist right do talk about Christianity, then um, church leaders should get involved and speak out and say whether they agree or disagree on that specific statement about Christianity. Point very well taken, and I think uh, I agree completely with that. Mm. Uh, I, I think uh, clergy like myself need to learn to even trust the people uh, under our care to discern, uh, to apply mm -hmm. principle. Uh, to their politics. And uh, I would argue that uh, the concern of the church is more with principle than with the political. Uh, there are times when it's unavoidable. Uh, you have to cross over. 
but it should be done, I think, uh, with great uh, reservation. Um, and we stay in our lane. And, and to borrow uh, a Bonhoeffrian uh, title, I think it's very much for Christians like me a question of discipleship and proper discipleship formation. Uh, and no doubt, uh, religious leaders of all kinds, but particularly uh, Christian, uh, will benefit from reading the title of the book you've contributed so well to, Faith, Nationalism, and the Future of Liberal Democracy. Uh, folks who are listening, uh, we're including a link to the book as well as to uh, a biographical sketch of my conversation partner today. And Tobias, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person in three dimensions uh, in October. Uh, of uh, This will go on uh, forever, this podcast. So I'll just note that uh, in October of 2021, my wife Cheryl and I will travel to Oxford. It'll be our first international journey since the pandemic. Uh, so uh, it will be reason for celebration in so many ways. But one is the reunion with you, Tobias, and your fellows there uh, at Pembroke College in Oxford. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you for this very rich conversation today. Uh, our listeners will be better off for it as we all are because of the work you've dedicated uh, the better part of your conscious years to, uh, for which we are indebted to you. Thank you, <laughs> Tobias. And uh, I know we'll look forward to uh, much more from you in terms of publication. And I hope uh, we can have another conversation on this podcast in the near future. Enjoy yourself there in Spain. I know you're there uh, on a little holiday uh, and, um, and in all your travels. And I will see you shortly uh, in uh, Oxford. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Rob, for the invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation as usual. I feel we always could go for hours and hours and hours, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to, to do so uh, when you're in Oxford and we can see each other uh, again in person and, uh, and discuss that, this for longer. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'm so looking forward to um, getting more involved in the Bonhoeffer Institute. Well, I've been talking with Dr. Tobias Kramer of Oxford. Uh, he, the author with others of Faith, Nationalism, and the Future of Liberal Democracy, one of our most recent appointments as a senior fellow with the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, the sponsor of this podcast. Thank you for joining us in this conversation today. Thank you, Robert.